Welcome to episode 69B. Today, the award-winning investigative journalist, Joe Napolitano, will share about how a school district denied refugee children their right to an education and what they did to claim their right back. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. I still remember when I had Inu join our school. She enrolled in my school in April from China and spoke no English. She was to return the next year to start seventh grade. When I learned about this, I angrily walked down to my principal's office and said, it's unethical to enroll her into this school when she has no way of graduating. And then I added, We are robbing her and her family of their money. The principal smiled and coolly said, we are not in the business of telling the future. Teach the person that's in front of you. The future might just surprise you. I think back to this really shameful experience. How could I, a so-called language specialist, deny a child of her right to an education? Well, what I did with this individual student is what the school district of Lancaster did to their older refugee students. The law said that they were allowed to be given an education like other students at their age. Yet older refugees were placed in prison like high discipline schools. They did not get the education they deserve. They were systematically denied this by the district. That was until six brave refugee students decided to sue the district for their education. Joe Napolitano's book is a heart-wrenching, moving story about their struggle and their victory. You will not be able to put this book down as the characters and their struggles will come alive. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so honored and excited to have Joe Napolitano on the podcast to share. So I personally read two books uh, a day. So I will go between my nonfiction book, which is usually a a teaching book. And in the evenings, I always uh, set myself to bed by reading a fiction book. And let me tell you, I'm breaking my rule with Joe's book because I'm reading a fiction, a, a nonfiction book, but I'm also reading Joe's book as a pleasure reading book because I cannot put it down. The way that uh, Joe has written the book, it is, if you, it's kind of like John, it's like uh, Daniel Pink and uh, see Maxwell. And like the way that you're writing is just so beautiful. It, it feels like I am with the characters who are real people. I see their struggles. I see them in their homes, in their schools. I see their advocates. 
and you've really created a story out of a real situation. So Joe, thank you for sharing, for writing and being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for enjoying the book and, and inviting me here to talk about it. It means the world to me. I'm very grateful. Would you uh, start talking, uh, start us off with talking about uh, your personal experience with the story? Where, where did this uh, story come from? I guess I want to read the question of how did you discover this phenomenon of immigrant kids being turned away from public schools? So I grew up on Long Island in New York. And when I was an education reporter there for Newsday, there was a school district called the Hempstead School District. And I actually mentioned them a little bit in the book. And they had received about 1,500 unaccompanied minors back in 2014, 2015. And this was a district that only had about 6,000 kids to begin with. So this was an enormous influx of kids who had, uh, you know, I don't want to say high needs, but they didn't speak English. And so that, that you know, the district was unprepared to teach that number of students who did not speak English. And so they um, flouted their responsibility to that group of students by telling them, go home, we'll call you when we have room for you. We don't have any classroom space for you. And that was, you know, horrific. So these kids just literally went home and waited, had no idea what to do. So I wrote about that district every week uh, for about a year, along with my colleague, uh, Victor Ramos. We just hammered away at this district for a long time. I called up the state's attorney general and asked them, is this, you know, a violation you should be involved in? And ultimately they did, not only in the Hempstead district, but issuing warnings to the 700 school districts in New York saying you cannot deny a child's request for enrollment if they live within your district. Um, and that, you know, several had, had been doing that for quite a long time. And so when I saw that on Long Island, Long Island has about 3 million people. And so at the time, it only received about 3,000 unaccompanied children. And it just didn't seem like the house should be on fire with that number. You know, we already had a lot of kids. It just, it was striking to me how much of a disruption that was and I had and, I, and how poorly the kids were being treated. And so I wondered if that was happening in other school districts around the country. And so I went on LexisNexis, which is a research tool um, used a lot in journalism. And I just typed in the words immigrant education. And I saw this phenomenon play out across the country from Maine to California of kids being turned away, of you know them being asked for you know these barriers to enrollment, things that districts know they won't have, report cards from their home countries, you know birth certificates, proof that they went through a specific grade, you know really disregarding the fact that these kids are often on the run, just grabbing the clothes on their back, a few things, and making this very dangerous journey to the states. And those those barriers to enrollment are exactly that; they're meant to keep these children out and present such a difficult time for enrollment that the kids give up. Uh, which does happen and is really, really tragic. Um, and so in addition to doing that LexisNexis search, I also called 37 of the nation's 50 ACLUs and asked them, do you have any upcoming cases on this matter? Because I knew of a case that had happened in Utica, New York, and I knew of one I think that was brewing in Collier County, Florida. And they said, no, we don't have anything. And I was all disheartened that I couldn't get to a case that hadn't occurred yet when someone called me back randomly, like an administrative assistant from one of the offices just called me back on a lark a week later and was like, you know, I have no idea this is exactly what you're looking for if you're interested, but six refugees are suing the school district of Lancaster for refusing to admit them or sending them to a high discipline alternative school. And my jaw just dropped. This was about two weeks before I started as a Spencer education fellow at Columbia University. So I had a full week to observe that trial and it was a week long. And I went every day and that's how I met the kids, the lawyers on both sides and got involved in that story. It's just so striking that you said it started in Long Island. Well, not started, you there, you were, you were familiar with a case on Long Island, but then when you 
dug a little deeper under the hood and you realize, oh my goodness, this is happening all over the U.S. So why do you think schools are purposely doing this to turn away refugee students? I think that refugees as a whole, particularly older refugee kids, have a bit of a lower graduation rate than other subsets of children. And so school districts are basically saying, we don't want to let you in for the chance you're going to lower our graduation rate. There are other resources in the community that can be useful to you, like the literacy centers, adult education, these other things kind of keep them out of the public school system. The thing is, we cannot bet against any group of children in this country, whether they're poor, black, Hispanic, differently abled, come from a zip code that doesn't have a lot of money. You know, we don't pick groups of students by, based on their religion, on their ethnicity, on any of those things and say, you know, we're sending all the Catholics home because we don't think they're going to do so well. Or we're sending all the black kids home because they might not graduate or all the poor, poor children can't come anymore. You know, we don't do that to children. We, we need to see the potential in all children, no matter what corner of the world they're coming from. And that's something I hold very, very, very dear. And so, but the schools are betting against them. They're just kind of like, you know, it's like you're shorting the housing market. It's like they're shorting, you know, they just don't, they don't think that investment is going to be returned. And so they're trying to kind of curb that from the start and push it away. You also said in the, I read in the book that um, schools like Lancaster in particular, uh, like there was a lot of funding issues and then this connects to that as well. Can you talk about that? Sure. So Lancaster, like so many school districts across the country, is drastically, jaw-droppingly underfunded. These people need more money. These, these school systems need more money. That's very real. So they struggled financially. And I feel like there's a, when you have a district that is, you know, underfunded, and then you have a group of kids coming who, who, who are somehow classified as like outsiders or new, or they're not our kids, they're not here locally grown. They seem like the group that you can say, well, you don't have access to these resources that we have because you're new here which is really bizarre and arbitrary. That's like saying blue-eyed kids don't have access to it or kids who wore red to school on Tuesday. You know, it's like those children who are in the district or trying to register in the district, are we don't rank them in order of like value or who is more deserving. You know, did you get here in 1984 or 19, like who is setting this? I, I would like to know who is determining the value of what right these different children have to an education because as the law states, any child living in that district has a right to a school. No one has any more right or less right. You just have a right. It's 100%, you know. Um, there's no, you know, parsing it out more or less to other people. But that that is often the case. And I think that's the case, not just in our schools, but with our, every nation, particularly our nations, our struggle with xenophobia. You know, we have limited resources. And who are we going to blame? The banks that are screwing us over, you know, the redlining of the real estate market, the you know, the underfunding of schools, well, that's so esoteric and large and weird, you know, the healthcare system that, that's making us bankrupt if we have a broken leg and can't go to work at a low wage job. Like, we don't know how to punch up, but we know how to punch down. Right. You know, so we don't know how to address those big ticket items, but we certainly know that, you know, that immigrant with a, you know, a headscarf who just came from Africa two months ago, well, it must be her doing, you know, um, because we don't even understand how to address the real actual problems that hurt our lives every day. Which uh, very connects to your your personal story. Would you mind? You started off with talking about your own experience in Colombia. Right? Could you tell us about that? Sure. So in the intro to the book, I talk about um, social mobility around the world, and we all know social mobility is really important. It's kind of like the concept that 
if you work hard, you'll get somewhere. You know, there's a, there's a bit of education that has to do with that and some social supports that can help people along if they work hard, you know, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And we all want that to be true. We want to be able to be a place where if you work hard, you get somewhere. Unfortunately, that's not always the case for different groups of people. So I talk about my own experience, which is that I was actually born in Bogota, Colombia and abandoned the next day at a bus stop by my birth mother. She actually walked up to a stranger and handed me to that stranger and said, can you hold my baby? I'll be right back. I just have to get her blanket from my mother's house. And this is a place called La Picota. This is where a friend of mine later told me is called the pillory. It would have been like the worst part of town where they would do like public hangings and executions back in the day. This is a really, really rough area. So she handed me to this woman and the woman stayed there for several hours waiting for my birth mother to return and she never did. And so the woman ultimately took me to a police station. Um, the police were able to track down my birth mother and charge her with child abandonment. And I was placed in an orphanage, um, a very well-known orphanage actually called Fana in Bogota that's still around today. Um, and I went there not in great shape. And when I left three and a half months later, I wasn't doing much better. I had gained about two pounds going from five pounds to seven pounds when I left in three and a half months. So, um, you know, that was a really stark, very bad situation. I was literally dying of starvation. As a matter of fact, they had to basically con a family into getting me who actually couldn't see me in person. So my mother who was up on Long Island, who would be my mother, who was looking for a child. And actually there were two other children in my family adopted from Bogota. So that's how she got the notion to begin with. So they had sent her pictures of me where I looked kind of okay. Um, but what she didn't know is that they had put me in several outfits at once, like like 10 different baby like onesies at one time. So I looked like a normal kid. And when she took them off one by one, I was like completely emaciated. And she had an, 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 another child, my older brother, who was adopted as well from New York City. And so they had a family pediatrician and she called up the family pediatrician and described my condition to the, the Long Island pediatrician. He said, don't take this kid home. She's never going to make the plane ride to JFK. She will absolutely die on the plane. But my mother decided that uh, I was her kid and she was going to take me home. And she did. And she skipped all the baby food and just like put lasagna in a blender, the very Italian family. My friend calls it the meatball IV. And I just became like super fattened up with all this like great Italian food and, um, you know, gained my health and had a good public school that I was able to attend, Sachem School District on Long Island. Um, from there, I got a nearly full ride to the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, which is ranked like 11th in the nation. Um, and later on was paid like 80,000 bucks to attend Columbia University. So the opening of my book is called From Columbia to Columbia in 40 Short Years. <laughs> Two very different Columbias. Yeah, right. Okay. Different paths, but yeah. the path was purpose. But there was like a, like you had to do that you, because then you wouldn't be able to talk about it. But you also had to be there because you're you were the right child for your mom. Yes, I am the right child for my mom, and she's the right mom for me. Can we're you tell about? Alike. Sorry, good. we're very much alike. We, everyone's like you look alike, you sound alike, you think alike. We do. <laughs> Can you tell us about uh, poverty as well? Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot that we can do to pull kids out of poverty all over the world, but most certainly in the United States. And the more equalizing we have our public school system, like for example, making pre-K universal for everybody, you know, having that year of, of education before entering the K through 12 years is such, such an important thing. Um, and when we don't do that, we obviously have a, a negative outcome. Um, 
And if you want, I could read a couple passages from the book that specifically yes. talk about that. Okay. That'd be great. So this is on page four of the book. And I write, of course, the cost of denying a child's education is enormous for both the individual student and their community. Those who are refused admission or who drop out before they can obtain a high school diploma will face dire outcomes. Not only will they earn more than a million dollars less during the course of their lifetimes as compared to their college educated peers, but they will also be twice as likely to live in poverty and face triple the unemployment rate. They are also far more likely to be arrested and to battle serious chronic illness. But perhaps the most troubling and surprising statistic involves mortality rates. Those who fail to earn a high school diploma die on average 10 years earlier than students who complete college. Outcomes are likely worse for those who also must battle a language barrier. So those are just a few statistics on what it means to deny a child's education. In the introduction, you also wrote, like going back to Colombia, that is that out of 29 nations, it was ranked the bottom. It would take, right, could you talk about that? Yeah, so I could read a little bit of that if you want me to read the first few paragraphs. I kind yes. of laugh for you a little bit. Yeah. This is the introduction of the book. It's called From Columbia to Columbia in 40 Short Years. Of all I learned in the course of reporting this book, one statistic made me gasp. It would take a child born into poverty in Colombia at least 300 years or 11 generations to earn the country's average income. There it stood dead last, a tiny Colombian flag on the bottom of a chart compiled in 2018, looking almost crushed under the weight of the 29 nations that came before it, including China, India, Brazil, and South Africa. The message was clear. To be born destitute in Colombia is to be nearly condemned. The advancement so minuscule in the course of one person's lifetime that it could be hardly detected, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, or OECD. And so, then you, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, it's, I think, difficult for so many of us, at least in America, to even fathom the idea that multiple generations of people working hard would get almost nowhere. You know, it's like a really difficult concept to understand. And I don't, I'm not an expert on the nation of Colombia, but I do know a few things. One, I know it's very geographically isolated in certain regions. There's like a mountain region kind of cutting off and making kind of a rural poor area. And I know that's true, of course, in China, you know, all around the world, we have these kind of remote places that schooling and opportunity does not reach. And I think about this every day. I think about how the gift that I have, a bit of an academic gift, I would be just as smart in Colombia, only I would have no outlet. I'd have no way to do what I wanted to do. And I, I just, that really shakes me because I know there are many people in Colombia and in rural China and in Darfur Sudan who's just as smart as I am and smarter, but don't have a way to share their gift with the world. And that's crushing to me. Yeah. I feel like when we have, when we allow, you know, millions upon millions of people to just languish in poverty, it's like, it's like a genocide of the mind. Like we just lose all the gifts they have. We will never know. Yeah. And I feel like we, we've really held ourselves back as, as humankind with our advancement in, in all areas because we're discounting we're, we're throwing away the gifts of what percent percentage of the population pretty substantial and so and i feel like you know we can't have it be that we're okay that okay i got here through the randomness of adoption i was able to get into northwestern and columbia so problem solved you know no it's not because for every one of me there's a thousand more you know who could have done the same thing but we just won't we won't know that right it's sad that location determines our outcome Yes. Almost almost 99% of the time, right? Because I was born in Vietnam, but luckily my mom decided to, uh, as a refugee, we decided to leave Vietnam and uh, 
to go on a boat and to to make make a way out of Vietnam. And then I remember a few years ago, I was just on a vacation in Laos, and there was a and I rented a, a kayak and a guide. And the guide was my age, right? And then I'm talking about his life, like his he has he has a wife, he has several kids, and then we we're talking about like uh, like lunch and stuff. And then somehow we talked about income, and I was like, I just like there was a moment where I said, wow, he's not. He's just as smart as me, just as able and capable. But the fact that he was born in a different country, and that I was born in a very similar country, but I got out. Our lives are drastically different, though we're born in the same year and geographically the same place. Right? It just gives you chills. It really, really does. I would think about that all the time. So we're back. You know, I've seen pictures of myself in the orphanage where I was in Colombia. My, my, I had an older brother who's five years older, and he took pictures inside the orphanage. And so I've seen rows of other little kids. And I always thought, you know, I was I was probably one of the sickest there, but I made it to the United States, to this great public school system on Long Island and, and to Northwestern, whatever. And I kind of always thought, like, I bet in that whole group, you know, group of people, I'm the only one who has an Ivy League education. So I was saying to the, to that that kind of musing on Instagram a few weeks ago, and this beautiful young woman wrote to me, and she was like, "By the way, I'm three years younger than you. I was in the same orphanage, and I am a Cornell-educated civil rights lawyer." And I just, I mean, it was like my blood just froze in my veins. I just, I just was like, wow, you know, I mean, my God, that is unbelievable, you know? And I am sure that when we were looked upon in that fragile state, like a, you know, parentless child, um, I think it was called the home for abandoned and unwanted infants, you know, just the, the most vulnerable image you can imagine a starving child you know, for two people at a, in a few years time. And those are the only two I know about, you know, there could be many more, I'm totally unaware, you know? So I just feel like that's, I, I wish if I ever had my, you know, I would never be able to find this out, but I'd love to be able to find out what happened to everybody right. adopted out of that orphanage, you know, the ones who stayed in America versus the ones who left. And, you know, but it, it, it's a constant reminder to me that, you know, intelligence and, and gifted folks and people who can contribute mightily in all areas, um, can be found everywhere. There's no geographic region or wealth disparity or race or religion that we get all our gifted people from. You know, they're 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 everywhere. We just have to give them the chance. And speaking about giving people the chance, it's it's when I the first sentence that I read was one of the first sentences in your introduction. You said it would take 300 some years for Colombian to have an average salary. 300 some years, and then people and I would think, oh, America is much better than that. Yeah, right. You look. Right. And when we look at you, like the next paragraph, you said it would take a person, a poor child born into a poor, low income family, five generations to have an average income. I stopped. I, I like screenshotted that and I tweeted out. I was like, this cannot be real. This is how, right. is how possible in America. Right. It's true. But, you know, if you think it, it's like, you know, when we look at black wealth, for example, in the nation and comparing college educated black folks wealth to like non-college educated white folks as wealth, and the black person, the black family is a lot less. It's like, hmm, you know, um, there are reasons for that. I mean, I remember reading a really wonderful book at once the top prizes. Oh, it was called Evicted. It came out maybe four or five years ago talking about the eviction crisis in the, in the United States. And one stat that it cited was that um, in Milwaukee, I believe it was, black folks with clean records were less likely to be hired than white folks who were convicted felons. You know, it was just like really, it really was jaw dropping. Like we are, we are 
it's like if you imagine life as a race, like a relay race, there are just people through no merit at all who are like so far ahead, you know? And it's just the rest of us are like putting on our shoes. Or I was in the orphanage. I didn't even know there was a track. Like, you know, you just like, like, there's a race. I don't even know what's happening, you know? And I just feel like that's what the race, that's what life looks like. It's like people starting way ahead, you know, and most of the rest of the world trying and failing to catch up. Right. You know, and so that's why I was so compelled to write this book about this young woman, Khadijah Issa, who fought this lawsuit. Khadijah was a, an incredible young woman who fled Darfur, Sudan, when 25 members of her, of her family were killed. She was a little, little girl, five years old. She, her mom, dad, and little sister, Nurisham, fled on foot to the neighboring country of Chad, where they stayed. And Chad, the UN had not yet created a refugee camp for them. So they just were baking in the sun, literally. The parents had to leave their children in the sun, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, with no supervision at all, along with hundreds of other children and parents in the same way. And the parents would go begging for food and money in the local community. And they would come back eight hours later. Can you imagine leaving a three-year-old for eight hours with a five-year-old? I mean, it was just insane. Finally, the US, UN camp is built and they move into a, a sweltering hot white tent. Their father, Adam, re, uh, replaced it with a straw hut, the one they were more accustomed to living in Sudan, which was much better for basically air conditioning and other reasons, it was a much better structure. And so he built it because he's a super smart and industrious guy. So he does that for the family and they actually grow a couple more members of the family. They had two sons at the time they were there because it's so funny when we think of refugee camps, before I wrote this book, I kind of thought of a refugee camp as something you're in for like a few months, you know, or like a year. And some people are, but many of them just, I mean, there are people living there for generations, you know? Right. There's a young blogger out of one of those camps who's like, my, I don't have the, I don't have an ethnicity. I forgot if she may have been Somali or where she was from. She's like, I'm not that, I'm refugee. Like I'm, that's my, that's my culture. That's my ethnicity. That is all, yeah, I've never been to the home country of wherever I was born here. You know, so you just have this totally different experience. So they had stayed there for a, for a dozen years um, in a refugee camp with the girls, all the children in the family going to school only a few months out of the year when farming basically wasn't happening. There was a break. So it's like you go, you know, years and years with just three months of schooling at a time. Um, it was a rough existence. And then for Khadijah, unfortunately her father who was super hardworking guy got worked out on a farm about an hour away on foot to help support his family in the camp. Um, and just did, you know, made this hour long trek and would go over the same waterway every time. That was this little trickle of water. It barely nipped his ankles. One day he went out there and the water was up to his neck and they never saw him again. And so had the mother, Miriam, was left with four children, Khadijah, Nurisham, and two boys, Ibrahim and Jalal. And after mourning him briefly and devastatingly, she was like, well, I guess I got to take his job on the farm field. So she and Khadijah and Nurisham would walk out there with the little babies. One of them was just born um, and they would strap one of the kids to their back to Khadijah's back, one Miriam would hold, Nurisham would walk on her own. They do that same hour long walk each way to that farm. At first Khadijah can only babysit the kids because she was very young. I think I'm trying to remember how old she was when her dad died, um, but she was pretty young so she would just babysit the other kids. But then eventually she joined her mom in that hard labor on that farm and they earned $5 a week, I think it was, a day or a week, I can't remember, I think it was a day. And they were able to buy a little bit of food with it, um, but not much. And no entertainment, nothing like that. And um, ultimately they learned they were coming to the United States. And, you know, also as kind of a xenophobic American, I had assumed if you learn you're coming to the United States, you must be doing backward cartwheels. That's the best news you can get, right? 
the thing is for a lot of refugees, we have to understand that they don't want to come that far. They don't want to change continents. I mean, that's why they have a refugee camp in Chad next to Sudan, because the idea is to go back to Sudan where the family, culture, food, language is. So when they heard they were coming to the US, they knew that a substantial portion of their life would just be cut off forever. I mean, they knew they'd be here in poverty a long, long time. They weren't going to be able to fly back to Sudan and hang out with the family, you know? So that was, it was like true saying goodbye um, to what they had known. So then they come here and the only reason they came was for education. That was really the only reason. And so Miriam, the mom, the matriarch of the family, who by the way is younger than me, she's like 40, um, her, her goal was to have Khadija be the first to go to college and then all the other children follow. And so it was really shocking and heartbreaking when the, the school refused to enroll Khadija in school. She was 18. She had, you know, obviously it only had a sixth grade education. She needed to learn English. She didn't speak a word of English. She was, however, literate in her native language. She spoke Arabic and she spoke four, which is the language of Darfur, Sudan. Um, but they just were like, look, you're not going to do well here. So they refused to enroll her along with many other refugees. And they had been doing that for several years. But Khadija knew that sounded wrong and kind of pushed back on that. And she and a handful of other refugees, the district after months of foot dragging and just squandering their education for months and months and months, decided them to put them in a high discipline alternative school, uh, the type of school where they put kids who had some trouble um, and they could be taken down to the ground in a physical restraint hold called handle with care. They had, you know, um, metal detectors. They were not allowed to bring books, backpack purses, feminine hygiene products, nothing. They could bring nothing to that campus. Um, and they were not trusted to bring anything home. So it was a very, I've been there actually. I spent a day in school there on the first day of school, I want to say in 2017. And I saw some loving, caring teachers and loving, caring staff members and loving and caring students who were kind and, and wonderful to one another. But I also saw a pretty high discipline environment that was very not typical of your typical school. We don't have like bouncer looking guys walking around most of our schools and, you know, kids it, it just in this extremely strict kind of like some some student compared it to like a juvenile detention type of thing. And, you know, these are refugee children who just got here and don't speak a word of English. So there was a big debate as to whether this was an appropriate environment for them or not. Yeah, I remember reading in the chapter, you said they are being patted down, their bras being checked all the way down to their legs and then all the way up to their crotch. And I was like, oh my goodness. And they, of course they come from an Islamic, uh, Islamic faith. And so they're like, don't touch, that's not the culture. That's not the way. And then you talked about like, if your person had to go to the bathroom, they would have to, like if someone had to scream down the hall to say male in the hallway, just to make sure there wasn't another, another person in the bathroom. And I was like, this is the, this is not the school that most people outside of the U.S. would think about, or people in the U.S. would think about. This is not a school because it's more like a prison. That's how it had been described. Now, of course, the school will take big contention with that, and the Camelot Education, which runs this school, will say, no, we're not like that. You know, they get really offended about that description. It's not one I've made up all on my own. You know, the, the facility itself looks more like a prison, so say many of, of its visitors, than a typical school, and it's run in this really, really strict way. Um, and like I said, I know there are teachers there who care deeply about these students, but the tone of the school is very harsh. I mean, if you read the one of these teachers named Jandy, who used to work at the school district, who provided testimony in court about what the, the tenor of the school is, 
She talked about you know teachers screaming at students, antagonizing students, goading, trying to goad them into physical fights and confrontations. There's been incidents against this Camelot education and the many the dozens of schools it runs across the country of of adults being violent with students. Serious incidents that you could look up easily if you wanted to you know investigate that. Um, so that's a real thing that happened. And so you know, but the district's feeling was. Phoenix provides a bare bones education, mostly for children looking to go through their high school curriculum like really quickly to join the workforce or maybe they're pregnant or have some reason they want to leave. So there's no, you know, extracurriculars or, you know, it's just the bare bones. And so it, since it's kind of sped up in the way the instruction is delivered, well, wouldn't this be an ideal placement for kids who might only have, you know, a finite amount of time in school left? The thing with that is, is that's not really true because students in Pennsylvania have the right to stay in school through the age of this through the semester in which they turn 21. So let's say you turn 21 in October and school started in September. You have the right to stay till the end of that semester. So for a student like Adiza, okay, she comes at 18. So that's 18, 19, 20, 21. She could have completed four years of education. But because she was denied an education for several months, and imagine it, it's not as impactful now because so many people with children have had their children out of school, quote unquote, out of school for the past year. But to just have your child unenrolled, like imagine that they're just not even, there's no remote, there's nothing, you know, for six, seven months as we try, you know, and, and ultimately enroll them after all this opportunity has been squandered. That's what was happening to these kids. And then they were placed in a, in a school where, according to them, they didn't even know what classes they were in. They could not tell you the names of the classes they took except for math. Right. They knew math and they knew ESL. Anything else, there was no translation service provided to them, according to them. And the district says, oh, that's not true. Well, then Khadijah and six other kids perjured themselves in federal court because they all said that was not offered to them. So, you know, and I really, Khadijah's not one to just make up, you know, fanciful things. And I kind of thought of it, I was like, even if the teacher said to them verbally, oh, ask us for translation tools if you need them. How do I ask you for that if I don't speak English and you don't speak four or Arabic? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, even if those things were technically available, are they available if a child doesn't know how to access that? Right. It's just so striking that Khadijah and her family moved to America. They said goodbye to their families. Not a problem. They said goodbye to their families in Darfur, in Chad. But then now they're going to America just for education. And when they get there, Khadijah and her younger siblings, yes, they have that right to education. She's at home. She's watching them go to school. She's watching them come back. She's watching them talk about uh, all the things that learning, she's watching them even forget their language, their their fur, right? And then she's now she's saying, "Why can't I get that?" She goes, she gets enrolled, they deny her, but then they put her into a for for profit school that's managed, right? That that's that's paid by the the, the the district, and the purpose of that is because the district is saving money. You said what three thousand per kid? They're saving money by paying Camelot. Right? Can you talk about that? So they, I want to say they saved at least a million annually, um, you know, through going with the school. And I, to my knowledge, schools like this often don't have, since they don't have a teacher's union, they have cheaper health care and a retirement and other costs. And so that's kind of like a bargain basement deal to kind of contract with many of these different types of places. So that was the, you know, as we had stated, the Lancaster School District was really hurting for money. It was truly underfunded and had been. I mean, it was involved in a lawsuit along with several other big districts in the state suing the state saying your funding formula is like discriminatory. It's unfair. And I, I fully agree with them. I hope they get every penny they need. So this is a district really in dire financial straits for which a deal like this looks very appealing. And, you know, 
I'm not an expert in whether or not that type of school works for some students. I will say when I was there, some parents were not the refugees. I'm talking about the regular you know, population. Um, some parents were grateful for the opportunity to go to Phoenix saying, look, my kid really struggled. They've been thrown out of school. They dropped out of school. They this, that, and the other, and this is the last chance they need. Other parents were begging for their children not to be, I mean, literally a woman, I saw her on the first day of school pleading with an administrator, like, my girl is not a bad girl. Please don't make her go here. And the administrator was like, look, this is where she's assigned. We'll take good care of her. I mean, so you kind of mixed feelings of parents in the area, but the refugee parents, I mean, it was like, you know, to the extent they could even understand what the school was. And that's another area we talk about with access. It's like, okay, what does access mean if the information you're trying to relay cannot be understood? You know, parents can't advocate for their children when they don't even know what's going on. So they're hearing from their kid, like, well, this school isn't that good. But it's like, I just feel like there's a huge barrier to understand even what they mean, you know? And, and then, you know, Miriam's, Miriam's experience where she had Khadijah in Phoenix and Nora Sham in this wonderful school, McCaskey, which had an international program, and the boys in two great middle schools, you know? And so they were doing well, Khadijah was struggling. And it was like, I feel like it, it even takes time for the kids to understand what's happening and then to relate that to the parents. And then the parents have to know there's something you can do about it. But then the parents were told, oh no, there's nothing you can do about it. This is where the kids are assigned. And then an advocate coming along and say, oh, no, no, guess who's going to decide this? The federal court, because you have taken away my child's right to advocate for themselves and say where they belong and, and you know, put themselves in a suitable environment. And so the person who's going to decide that is a federal judge. And that's exactly what happened. Before we get to talk about that uh, pathway, like, OK, so now we're talking about the lawsuit. Tell us about, like, why do why do school districts think that it's I know that you talked about, yes, they think that these kids are there's a finite amount of time. They're not going to graduate. But is there an, are there other factors? You talked about uh, a certain election happening at that time. You talked about generations of xenophobia uh, in the Lancaster area. Can you talk about that? You know, it's I'm unclear if I know this phenomenon in Lancaster of turning away refugee children had been going on for several years. Certainly, when Khadija came around, you had the backdrop of the 2016 presidential election where children like her, who had all the bad things going for them, Muslim, refugee, immigrant, dark-skinned, African, Black, you know, all the things that our then-president was telling us was like, the enemy of the state looked like this. Um, and so I feel like at that time, it would be particularly difficult to stand up and say, I am just as deserving as everyone else. And that's why I wrote a book about Khadija because that's exactly what she did. With her head scarf, with her whole thing, got up in a federal court and made that argument. And I think that's really an incredible thing. But yes, you had a, a very difficult time. I mean, you know, immigrants and refugees don't already don't know their rights. And then I think there's certain time periods in, in American history where they are more or less advocated for, like they have more or less advocates, you know? Um, and I would say now we're in a time where we have, or perhaps God willing, like kinder to our immigrant population versus a few years where we could just openly point and deride and make fun of and harass and, you know, hurt emotionally and physically our new immigrants. And so, you know, yeah, that was a very difficult time to be discriminated against in that way and to stand up, you know, and fight for your, for your right. But that's what right. she did. Right. So it's not just the money issue for the districts, but it's also like the racism where people thought, OK, na nationally, we're thinking of this. And then the people in the in the who were involved in the school district said, we believe this, too. You are not enough. You won't make it. They're hearing this during the election. They're seeing kids who are enrolling. They're like, you know what? 
here. You go to an alternative school. This is the best option for you. We will keep our funding for, for kids that don't look like you. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to note the superintendent of the Lancaster schools is a black woman. And the, the man who is keeping the kids out, who is the gatekeeper of admissions, Jacques Blackman, is a black man. Um, he might be Caribbean, I'm not sure, but they're both, uh, they are both black. And so I feel like it was less of a, and now of course, it, you know, I'm not an expert in this. I know there's some tension between American blacks and African blacks and American blacks and Caribbean blacks. You know, there are existing tensions within those two groups. I would say for those administrators, it was not so much a race issue as it was a, you know, like you're coming from a part of the world and there were other children other than than black africans there were a couple kids from oh man i think it was burma so it was just it was more like you don't have the intellectual ability right now to kind of hold your weight in this environment and we don't have the faith that you're going to get there right. before it's time to graduate so it's kind of you know i think I do wonder if the kids were light white skinned people, would this happen if they're coming from a white country? I don't know, you know, but I think, you know, it's like impossible to know that, but I do know that not speaking a word of English, having missed years of schooling, um, you know, that interrupted education, those are the things that were, you know, really the, were a huge, you know, unattractive quality on the behalf of the school district. I'm just so impressed uh, that she did that. Though all these things were against her, she stood up and said, no, I am worth it. I am more than enough. I want my education. Can you talk about her process of doing that? And then who was her superhero? Who was her advocate? Yes. I mean, I could tell you, Khadija had a tremendous faith in what America is. She first heard of America when she was living in Darfur, Sudan. And I didn't know this before I started writing the book, but Darfur is one of the most isolated regions in the world. Yet America's reputation had reached not only into Darfur, but into neighboring Chad inside. It's kind of like, I feel like a breeze or like smoke that kind of comes in. It's like this notion of what something is. And so she believed in America as a place of fairness. And she, her America, Khadijah's America, elected a black president with African roots. So that's the America she grew up with and believed was believed very much in. And so when she got here and her experience was different, it's, it challenged her notion of America. So in her mind, she's like, no, America is a place of goodness and equity and fairness, where if you work hard, you can get somewhere. That's the truth of America. So what's happening in the school district is going against that. And so they must be wrong. And it's amazing, I think, to see that level of faith in this country at a time when people like myself, who had lived here you know, for a very long time and seen all these iterations of America and been so disheartened by what happened in 2016, just dumbfounded by things that were being said on the public stage about women, about immigrants, about refugees, about Muslims. It was just, it was like a nightmare. And here was Khadijah saying like, oh, that's an aberration. You know, America is this other thing. So really Khadijah is her own superhero and her faith is her superhero. You know, she had faith. And so she was waiting for America to live up to itself. That was what she had to wait out. And when the system worked, you know, she goes to a federal courthouse in front of an old white judge and she pleads her case and he decides, you know, there's a lot, few nuances to this, but generally in her favor, it was like, told you, you know, like she was like, you know, duh, you know, of course that would happen, you know? And so I really love and admire her level of faith and optimism, you know, even in the face of discrimination and the face of unfairness. Um, Khadija is an extraordinarily chipper, like very happy, um, joyful girl with a great laugh, a great sense of humor, 
And that, and her mother's the same way. And that, that has what's propelled them all the way from through the death of their father and husband, through the dozen years in the refugee camp to America, this like, they are a loving, incredible and tight family that anyone would be lucky to be a part of. And I am now a part of. Khadija and I are very close. Khadija, best news of all, became a citizen two, three days ago on Friday. She and her sister, Nurisham, um, who I believe if Khadija now is 21 or 22, Nurisham's like 19, uh, passed the citizenship test and they are both the newest Americans. They became naturalized in Philadelphia and I, the world is a better place, I swear to you, now that we have these kids here. I'm recording this on June 14, 2021. So that means it's been just a few days. It was last week. Wow. Friday. Yes. Would you tell us about, so before, so you gave us like the trailer end of it. Tell us about like, what was her process of, of advocating, of going in front of that judge and, and, and pleading her case? And You know, Khadija, of course, was a child who was new to the United States. She didn't have an extensive knowledge of our legal system or anything like that. But she did have some interaction with um, people in the refugee resettlement community, including a remarkable woman, originally Canadian, um, named Elise Chesson, who was helping Khadija and the family with resettlement issues. And when Elise was very new to her job. And so when she and her colleagues tried to enroll the kids in school, they noticed this phenomenon of like, why are we having a hard time with the oldest kids in all these families? The kids at 17, 18, 19, like we're getting told no, we're getting asked for you know paperwork or things that we shouldn't, don't feel should stall this process by months and months, but they are. Why is this happening? And when, when Elise noticed this trend, she's very much a doer of a person. And so she was calling the district over and over. What is the problem here? I need to meet face to face with the superintendent. And she would go for these super contentious meetings. The superintendent was just super pissed off at this woman's you know, posture of like, no, they need to be enrolled now. Oh, we'll look into it. It'll take a few months. No, it's not going to take a few months. It's going to take place now. And so Elise would not let up, which really upset the superintendent, which is like, no one's here to caress your fragile ego. The law is the law. Five days, that's what it should take. That's what your own records say it should take. Not five months, not six months, now. You know, so Elise would not let go of this issue and she recruited other people to get involved. She wasn't really getting anywhere. And she was like, you know what? Even though I'm such a rabid dog about this issue, they're not changing because of me. So she started reaching out to media groups, law firms, and she finally was like, you know what? I guess the ACLU is the right place. So she got the whole matter in front of the ACLU. The ACLU was appalled by what they saw happening and ultimately met with all the kids and extracted their stories and, and you know learned about what was happening and also had to educate the kids and say, look, here in the United States, when we have issues like this, there's a court system and you have to file a lawsuit against the district to do this, which if you could imagine being, if you and I moved tomorrow to like Botswana and some, some bad thing happened to us and some lawyers come around and we're like, by the way, Joe, the only way to resolve this is to take your whole state to federal court. And we would just be like, no. And a lot of refugees did say that. A lot of them were too afraid. They were like, we're coming from countries where we're persecuted. You basically want me, because they, a lot of them think of schools as an extension of the government. I don't think they're entirely wrong in that, by the way. But they're kind of like, you want me to sue the government of a country where I'm not a citizen. Like I'm here, I was invited as a refugee. You know, like. I, so it was a very hard sell and only six kids out of like a couple dozen that could have been involved, only six agreed to do it. Um, and that's why, because it was so difficult. But Khadija, she believed the attorney, she believed they were, you know, the spirit of what they were saying sounded right. You know, in America, we there is a resolution for these things that is not gunfights in the street, you know? So it kind of sounded right. And so, and she knew, I asked her many times, she was like, I knew I was right. I knew I was right. And even when I wrote the book, I'd asked her, I was like, Khadija, if I use your real name, which I did, 
you'll get a lot of pushback. There'll be people on blogs and on Twitter saying, you know, take your towel headed south and go back to Africa. That's literally what I said. I said the meanest things I could say to her. I'm like, Khadija, that's what they're going to say. Are you okay with that? And she said, yes, I am because I know I'm right. And I was like, okay. And then we went forth and used her name and every, you know, it was just, it was a lot of struggles in doing this and, you know, being honest with her about the pushback she might get, but thankfully she hasn't gotten much and I don't want her to, I'd rather take it myself. That's fine. Um, but she's a really remarkable woman who was driven by the fact that she knew she was right. What more do you need than that? Ugh. You know, as I'm talking and I'm learning more about Khadija, do you remember when Malala Yousafzai was shot um, and the next day Madonna was like, I'm tattooing her name on my spine. <laughs> and I'm like, girl, Khadija, all right, here's my spine. Yeah, right. I, I want you to write it in Arabic. I want you to write it in Durfur for me. I want <laughs> you to right. just go on right, right here. <laughs> she's my hero, man. Khadija, right. it's like, she is the ultimate American. You know, she's an immigrant with this great accent. She's super funny. We work so hard. To me, like when I think of what's a typical American, it looks like Khadija, you know, it looks like all of our immigrant faces, you know, particularly hers. It looks like struggle, hope, and getting there. Yeah, and, exactly. And working with the system to get there. Right. Sometimes exactly. fighting against the system. Right, right. And it's faith that, they, you know, I think her optimism, if she was a more kind of dour kid or just felt like really beaten down by a lot, the hand that life had given her, I think she would have had a different outcome. But she just, she sees the joy in everyday things. She's just so funny. Oh my God, they're so funny. I remember what, they were making dinner for me one night when I visited, because I visited them like twice every week for a year. So I was out there a tremendous amount of times, like probably about 70 times from New York City to Lancaster. I know I stayed at one hotel for more than 50 times. And so I would go see them a lot. And I remember just them cooking dinner and it's like a house filled with song. And it's kind of like my family, my grandmother's, like sung Italian opera, not as a profession. She like, none of my people have any education, but she was, she was a great singer. And so she would sing this Italian opera and make this great food. And here you have a couple generations later, Khadija, I asked her, I, <laughs> she needed to blend some spices. And you know that thing that you crush spices, what's that called? pesto. So I'm used to the little American version like this. Khadija comes out with this thing. It looked like the thing you put a mop in, like it was that large with this huge bucket. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And it was like in the middle of Lancaster, Pennsylvania with this great music playing. And here's Khadija thrashing her little spices. I mean, I was like, this is so American. Like this is such an American household, you know? And I just, there was something so beautiful. I will never forget that moment, you know? Just like, Wow. And like, how much richer are we as a nation to have her doing this here? And I tell you, we are richer for it. What did the what did the Lancaster district say when they were in front of the judge and the judge was like, why are you doing this? What did they say? So Lancaster was defended by a really remarkable attorney called Sharon O'Donnell, who was just a spitfire intelligent woman. She's she's really a remarkable attorney. She went up against like a dozen other people on the opposing side and really held her own. Basically, she said, look, schools are run by a school board. We elect them as a people. We elect our school board and our school board tells the superintendent what to do. Right. Our school board, which is a really, 
you know, sacred thing in the United States is the local running, like that local, I forgot there's a word for it, um, local control. You know, that's a really important thing here. So she's like, we have a system that exists that determined this was okay. If it wasn't okay, those people who decided this wouldn't have been elected. You know what I mean? Like we have a system outside the federal court to decide these matters. And the best people for running the, the school district of Lancaster are its administrators. And we really end up from the bottom of our hearts feel the literacy center is a fine tool to help people learn English. And further they said, because the judge said, why is it important for kids to graduate? Wouldn't it be enough for a child to go to that district for a year or two, learn the culture of America, learn the language, learn a few other things? And, and wouldn't that be enough, even if they don't make it to graduation? And the district was like, oh, my God, no. Schools are built for the purpose of graduating children. If you merely want to learn English, that's what the literacy center is for. And they won't have, you know, if it, whether you flunk out of there or not, doesn't have a, a consequence for the local school district who could see their reputation dinged if suddenly their graduation rate drops. It's, I guess what I'm trying to say is like in the world of working with multilinguals, they often are uh, subjected to practices that a middle or upper class family would never let happen. Right. I believe our tolerance for the mistreatment of immigrants is extremely high. I think that's evidenced by the existence of children being held in old Walmart centers on the border of Mexico and taken away from their parents. If I told my neighbors uh, next door to my house right now, I'm just going to take your kids for a little bit uh, and put them in this uh, warehouse with a bunch of other kids and no heat and no toothbrushes and limited food and, and a very bare minimum education, if anything, of value at all, you know, you, my home would be surrounded by pitchforks, you know, but to an immigrant, you know, these people crossing illegally or these people who are refugees, which are weirdly piled in the same heap, even though refugees come at the invitation of the United States and undocumented children don't. But, you know, th that is just a phenomenally shocking idea if it were applied to a white middle class child. But it's somehow okay for kids like me to be rounded up and put in a cage. Right. And I think that says a lot about us. And I used to live in McAllen, Texas, which was really helpful in writing the book. I lived in McAllen. It was my second or third job out of journalism school. I lived in, you know, in McAllen, you might remember, is where the unaccompanied kids are coming from. Many of them are coming through that McAllen border. So anyway, I lived there like 15 years ago. And I went back in the summer of 2018 when the kids were being held in these warehouses. And the thing that was so disheartening to me about them is that those warehouses, I thought maybe, oh, they must be on the outskirts of town, kind of out of sight, out of mind. They're like in the middle of town, like next to a grocery store and like a coffee shop across the way, like in our main shopping plazas, in our main rooms that we drive by. And I know there were protests to get them out. And I was at some of those protests, but it wasn't every day. It wasn't people surrounding the facility saying, let these kids out now, like a human chain of like, this is not going to go on. That never happened. You know, and I really feel like that tells you a lot about what our tolerance is for the mistreatment of immigrant people. I still remember there was a thing on Twitter. There was a kid, an undoc undocumented kid and his family locked in their house and they they tried to get into their van and because they were wait the ice was waiting for them, they, they left their they left if they left their house, they would be arrested. So people neighbors came around and they made a human chain, a human barrier around from the door all the way to the van and from the other side of the van all the way to the door so that ice could not come. When, when, the, when the human chain was made, opened the door, they ran through the chain, went into the car and then sped away. And I was like, oh, right? I was like, yes. And I was like, 
Right. Like, how is this happening? And the, and it was like just a little kid and with his with his mom and dad. And I was like, what? what you know, they- I just think for myself, you know, I grew up on Long Island. Long Island's a very Jewish place. And when I was growing up, we learned a lot about the Holocaust. This was a major theme in my education and my in the history. And it's funny, I thought every child in America had that experience. Turns out, no, it's because Long Island is so Jewish that, and my, my partner is Israeli. He's actually in Israel, Israel right now. Um, but I know more than he does about the Holocaust. I'm like, let me tell you what. And so I like take off these facts about him. I'm like, you think you're exotic? Nothing exotic about you. But anyway, I knew a lot about this as a child because I was taught so much and I met so many Holocaust survivors when I was a little girl. The grandparents of friends would come to school with the numbers tattooed on their arms and talk to us. So this is like a really important part of my education. And I would always ask myself when I was a little kid at the time, like if anything like that happened now, like what would what would you do? What would you have done back in Germany in the 1940s as a Catholic, because I'm Catholic, there were Catholics who helped out and Catholics who totally sold out the Jews. So you had like two, two different things happening there. But what would you have done? And if you ever saw an atrocity, you know, in your lifetime, what would you do to, you know, to oppose that? And I've thought about that every day for the rest of my life. And I feel like here we had a civilization that I don't believe is um, akin to a Holocaust. So because in Holocaust, you have millions of people killed. I think that's different than what happened here. And I think we can should agree on that. I, I don't like it when people conflate these issues. But I do feel that what happened was catastrophic for children who were held from their parents for months, who cannot be reunited with their parents because their parents have been deported, who have been put through the adoption system. I know a lot about adoption having been adopted. That's a really permanent placement. That's not something you can easily undo. So to have these things happen, I mean, that is really tragic. And so I, you know, this was important to me because I wanted to kind of take a snapshot of this moment and, you know, dwell on this and dwell also dwell on this victory too, this rare, rare, rare victory for an immigrant child and immigrant children. But I feel like we cannot, you cannot walk by, you know, a catastrophic thing and just keep going. You just can't do that. You know, that's how these things fester. Like when good people do nothing, you know, so I don't want to be that person. Oh, my good people do nothing. We're going to end with that in a few seconds, but in a few minutes. But I want to talk to you about, let's go back to Khadijah's story, our little heroine. How, so she won the case. Tell us about what happened now from then until she got her citizenship. What was her education like? So she, you know, won in federal court with the judge generally deciding with the kids. And it was a very, you have to read the book to see the level of compassion he dealt with the children, though he was a very staunchly conservative judge with Antonin Scalia quotes all over the office. He's a proud conservative. Um, And so to see him interact with the kids on the stand was, was really remarkable. So he makes a decision mostly in their favor. But the school district does not want to let off that local control. So they take the kids back to the appellate level. And that case is decided after Trump is in office. So I'll give you a little cliffhanger mystery as to how it goes. I'll tell you, you will end up smiling, but it was definitely a difficult, difficult case. So um, Khadisha ultimately was put into the main school with her sister, Nurisham, that McCaskey High School, that typical high school, um, where she thrived. She wanted to take nursing courses. And she's such a diligent nutcase. This kid is so funny. Her teacher would give her tests on human anatomy and is she would not stop taking the exam over until she scored 100. <gasps> she would like get an 84. No, I'm taking it again, 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 again. She would not stop until she got 100. When during one of her nursing exams, she had to partially undress a nude model. So like a dummy in a bed that you have to undress. That's a skill as a nurse. You have to undress someone, but with modesty and respect and everything. So the requirement for that class was just do half the body. Cause obviously we don't have you know time or it doesn't matter if you can do the whole thing. 
And Khadijah refused to do it. She was like, no, I'm doing it to one side, the left side, and then the right side, because in a hospital setting, I'm not going to undress half a patient. I'm doing the entire thing as I would if I were being, you know, tested for like the board of nursing. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. I mean, this girl, and that's like, I look at it now. It's like, you want to keep that kid out of school? You know, it's just so shocking to me. It's like, you know, yeah, there might be kids in the immigrant community who won't do as well and aren't as diligent, but when you throw them all out, you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, you throw this brilliant child out, you know? So Khadijah went to continue on to community college. She has poked away at her community college classes over the last few years. It's a challenge for ESL children in community college because you end up spending a lot of money to learn what she should have learned had she gotten the proper education the first time, the free appropriate education K through 12. But when we screw these kids over in this way, we kind of put the financial burden on them of, of getting it when they have to pay for it. Um, so she's had to do a lot of ESL classes. I believe right about now she's done with that. I can move on to her official nursing classes. Um, she's about 22 now. She got married last summer. I had a beautiful little baby. And I said to her, I'm like, you have another one? She's like, nope. And I was asking her, I was like, you know, Khadija, I was like, how are you going to do, you know, breastfeeding in school? And how long are you going to do it? And she's like, a few months. She's like, I got stuff to do. I got, she's just like, all my friends are like, Ivy League educated, like fighting over who can do this, you know, for two years, 10 years, 30 years. So the kid can spell milk, not Khadija. She's like, this has a finite purpose. So I got stuff to do. So she is just the, the most motivated, funniest kid in the world. And she's just a, a great girl who's a joy, joy, joy for all of us. I am so we're I'm, we're all applauding. People who are listening are like, "Yes, Kadisha, you did it, you made it." <laughs> so, what? Let's end this podcast by saying, like, I, I'm as a teacher listening to this, and I live in Pennsylvania. I'm a resident of Pennsylvania, though I work abroad. I'm thinking, okay, and you know that this is happening around the U.S. So, what can teachers do, like, with this book now, like, because you said when good people do nothing, and I don't want to be a good person that does nothing. I definitely would check in with your local school district and see what are the admission criteria. And if you see anything that looks weird on there, like I need your report cards from home as a condition of, you know, you enrolling, or I need a certain birth certificate, or I need a social security card, or I need your parents' social security card, you know, things that hint towards citizenship, whether or not, you know, so I feel like if everybody just look, just take a look and I'll tell you why too. A couple of years ago, I was at an education writers association conference and I met a young woman out of Arizona a reporter who paired up with the ACLU to call up every charter school in the state of Arizona and look at its graduation, I'm sorry, its enrollment requirements. She found an, a stunning number of violations in what the charters out there were asking of kids and wrote a you know, beautiful, incredible story about it. It's like, wow, I wish I could do that nationally to every school district in the country, like look at their rates. I can't look at their enrollment criteria for every one of many thousands of districts, but together we can, you know, if we have, if you're a teacher right now listening, just go over to your district website, take a little look at that and see like, does this look right? Or is this, you know, and if you could approach the district say, look, I'm, I'm really in with the ESL community, obviously, and the immigrant community here. And like, here's our state standard of what we should be asking. And here's what we're asking for, which seems to be off, you know? And if it remains off, I would contact my local newspaper and let them know. Uh, you know, that's where we're kind of, a, you know, we're not, I wouldn't say we're a team, but we all have a different role here, you know, and I've had many tips over the years as an education, many, many tips over the years as an education reporter of things that are illegal or fraudulent or just wrong that have happened in the public school system. I'm also hearing another thing. If, if the school board is elected, we can do so much by knowing the people who are our candidates electing for them, voting for them, campaigning for them, or going on and being and campaigning for ourselves. 
like volunteering to be on the board, right? So, I mean, that's just, that's a really big ask, but uh, there are but things. You're right. Yeah, you're right. We, we have to care about and be in line with the values of the people we're putting in elected positions. But even then I would say, we don't even have to be in line with some of these people because they could be wackadoos. The law says what it says, you know, so you could be as wacky as you want to be. If you're violating the state, you know, and federal guidelines, it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. You have to be in line with those standards or you will find yourself on the wrong side of a multi-million dollar federal lawsuit and a book. <laughs> that many people are reading about it. <laughs> so tell me about the, Tell me about this is a, a stone and that has caused a ripple. Tell me about the ripple that has that you have caused. Well, I hope that, you know, districts around the country that hear of this story, and I will say when the story took place in the summer of 2016, it did not get a lot of media coverage because the house was on fire. Trump was about to be elected, you know, literally weeks away from election every day started these new fires with these insane things about Mexicans and their rapists, some of them are okay. I mean, it was just like crazier and crazier every day. So it didn't get a lot of attention and now it is. And I've heard from a lot of from a lot of teachers who are like, you know, I want my superintendent to read this. I want the like people need to know what the law is and know that this case existed and this district lost badly. You know, and, and so we don't want to be the subject of a lawsuit. We're not trying to get into a multi-million dollar fight when we're already on losing ground. Like we're basically trying to say in the court it's okay to discriminate against certain groups of students. That's like, that's the only argument. And that's the argument this this school district made. They're like, look, we're looking at what we think you'll be able to do. And we're not just pulling that out of our butts. Like that's based on statistics and data. So we're gonna we're making a pretty you know educated guess about your potential. And so we're just going to kind of cut you off at the pass. That was the basic argument. Um, whereas, you know, and I, that's, you know, we kind of laugh because it sounds so absurd, except that it's happening all the time, you know? And it's like, I always think like we have one life, you have one life, you know, we don't give, we don't each have 10 shots at this. You have one time to go around and you have a finite amount of your life devoted to your education. You know, it's not, one of the things the judge said in the case, it was like irrevocable harm, like in a way that cannot be mended. There's no amount of money you can give. Like if you imagine if you missed four years of your high school education, is there an amount of money your district could give you that could make up for that? Is there a golden watch or a prize or a fancy dinner? Like what could possibly make up for losing those fundamental years of your education? Literally nothing. You know, so that's what's so important about this case and Khadijah and all these brave kids in this story. What did, what, so what you said Lancaster lost and they lost badly. Tell us about that and then we're going to end the podcast and I'm going to thank you as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, they lost and they, I think it's kind of remarkable that they kept trying to fight it. You know, they lost initially in the federal court with one judge and then they went before a three judge panel and lost again. And it's funny when the appellate court heard their argument, and I was there for that and both Lancaster got up and spoke and the ACLU got up and spoke and kind of gave a brief summary of, of each thing. And the judges were you really couldn't tell how they were going to decide because when they talked to the ACLU, it looked like they were deciding with the school district. And when they talked to the school district, it looked like they were siding with the ACLU. I mean, they really considered the points on all sides in a very genuine way. And some of the language they use in their decision really like took my breath away, what they ultimately concluded, because I, I really felt in my heart, they really did listen with like an open mind to both sides. They really considered this issue. Um, and made a decision that was, you know, hopefully setting a precedent for other districts that are have been doing this or, you know, thinking of doing this. Or, and I feel like we're on the precipice of this happening in a very big way again, because we're having a, an enormous number of unaccompanied minor children coming to the country who will be enrolling in our schools in the fall. 
They probably skipped out on, on springtime because schools were a mess and I'm open, I'm not open, I'm, I can't register, I don't know. Well, it's not gonna be the case in the fall. You know, We're gonna have a much more streamlined process. And I believe in my heart, like we have a new opportunity to do right by these children, this next generation of kids uh, that's coming over right now to make sure our districts are treating them fairly in terms of enrollment. Oh, this is just, you know, I'm thinking when, if there's a person out there that's seeing this in the district that's happening, they're gonna say, Oh, you're not going to listen to me? Here's a book. Yeah. Would you like this person to come in, uh, spotlight your district as well? Because this is not going to look pretty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, I'd even speak to districts, you know, if they are having this problem. And I would encourage, you know, if you're interested in what I'm doing, reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Joe underscore Napolitano. Um, so that's the best way to reach me. I'm on there frequently. So that's J-O underscore N-A-P-O-L-I-T-A-N-O. Shoot me a message and say, like, you know what? You know, it'd be good to talk to our school board, our principals, our this and that. And I absolutely would because I feel like every kid's life is worth saving, like academically and educationally. And so, even if it was just a few kids who would have been kept out of your district, you know, it's like I will intervene if I can to share this story and to enlighten people about what their obligation is and hopefully change their hearts and their practices. You know, I um. I'm getting chills as I'm thinking about my goodbye to you because my prayer before every blog post that I write and every course that I create or every uh, podcast that I record, I always say, may this serve kids I will never meet. And I think of all the scholars that I've interviewed, I think you have one of the most significant impacts on kids you will never meet, Joe, because you're going to be you've shared this story of Khadijah's story and five other kids. They're going to read this book and they're going to say, wait, this is not right. And I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be a good person that does nothing. And so you are serving kids you will never meet around the U.S. Oh. Because of your, because of your years of work, your, your time with Khadijah and sharing, and she is so brave. You are serving kids you will never meet. So we thank you for that. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy. This is one of my favorite interviews. I'm so grateful to you. If you found this podcast helpful, can you please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and just take, a, take two or three minutes and just write a quick review. Your written comments and your reviews really help teachers just like you find the podcast. Every single review I get, every tweet I get about the podcast really makes all the hours I put into this worth it. Now on to our recap. What is our job after listening to this conversation with Joe? Our job is to stand with those who others have stopped believing in. If you're listening to this podcast, I know that you stand with those who have others have betted against. Joe's calling for us is to stop any discriminatory practices at our school and our school districts that are discriminating against students. And this discrimination leads to their inability to access education. Not just any education, but an equitable one. Joe, thank you for writing this book. You've made my heart grow twice in size today. No, this is not your typical education book with strategies, but yes, 
We need this book for our practice because we are the advocates for multilinguals and their families who have come here, who've sacrificed so much for one thing, the opportunity to have a better life. And that opportunity starts in our schools. I hope you get this book. I hope you read it and share it with others. This will pull at your heart. Try not to cry. In the next podcast, we'll have legendary guru, Dr. Margot Gottlieb, talk about having assessments in multiple languages. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile.